Section 5 of State of the Union Addresses, 1829-1836. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. State of the Union Address, Andrew Jackson, December 6, 1830, Part 3. It gives me pleasure to announce to Congress that the benevolent policy of the government, steadily pursued for nearly thirty years, in relation to the removal of the Indians beyond the white settlements, is approaching to a happy consummation. Two important tribes have accepted the provision made for their removal at the last session of Congress, and it is believed that their example will induce the remaining tribes also to seek the same obvious advantages. The consequences of a speedy removal will be important to the United States, to individual states, and to the Indians themselves. The pecuniary advantages which it promises to the government are the least of its recommendations. It puts an end to all possible danger of collision between the authorities of the general and state governments on account of the Indians. It will place a dense and civilized population in large tracts of country now occupied by a few savage hunters. By opening the whole territory between Tennessee on the north and Louisiana on the south to the settlement of the whites, it will incalculably strengthen the southwest frontier and render the adjacent states strong enough to repel future invasions without remote aid. It will relieve the whole state of Mississippi and the western part of Alabama of Indian occupancy and enable those states to advance rapidly in population, wealth, and power. It will separate the Indians from immediate contact with settlements of whites, free them from the power of the states, enable them to pursue happiness in their own way and under their own rude institutions, will retard the progress of decay, which is lessening their numbers, and perhaps cause them gradually, under the protection of the government, and through the influence of good counsels, to cast off their savage habits and become an interesting, civilized, and Christian community. These consequences, some of them so certain, and the rest so probable, make the complete execution of the plan sanctioned by Congress at their last session an object of much solicitude. Toward the aborigines of the country, no one can indulge a more friendly feeling than myself or would go further in attempting to reclaim them from their wandering habits and make them a happy, prosperous people. I have endeavored to impress upon them my own solemn convictions of the duties and powers of the general government in relation to the state authorities. For the justice of the laws passed by the states within the scope of their reserved powers, they are not responsible to this government, as individuals, we may entertain and express our opinions of their acts, but as a government, we have as little right to control them as we have to prescribe laws for other nations. With a full understanding of the subject, the Choctaw and the Chickasaw tribes 
have with great unanimity determined to avail themselves of the liberal offers presented by the act of congress and have agreed to remove beyond the mississippi river treaties have been made with them which in due season will be submitted for consideration in negotiating these treaties they were made to understand their true condition and they have preferred maintaining their independence in the western forests to submitting to the laws of the states in which they now reside these treaties being probably the last which will ever be made with them are characterized by a great liberality on the part of the government they give the indians a liberal sum in consideration of their removal and comfortable subsistence on their arrival at their new homes if it be their real interest to maintain a separate existence they will there be at liberty to do so without the inconveniences and vexations to which they would unavoidably have been subject in alabama and mississippi humanity has often wept over the fate of the aborigines of this country and philanthropy has been long busily employed in devising means to avert it but its progress has never for a moment been arrested and one by one have many powerful tribes disappeared from the earth to follow to the tomb the last of his race and to tread on the graves of extinct nations excite melancholy reflections but true philanthropy reconciles the mind to these vicissitudes as it does to the extinction of one generation to make room for another in the monuments and fortifications of an unknown people spread over the extensive regions of the west we behold the memorials of a once powerful race which was exterminated or has disappeared to make room for the existing savage tribes nor is there anything in this which upon a comprehensive view of the general interests of the human race is to be regretted philanthropy could not wish to see this continent restored to the condition in which it was found by our forefathers what good man would prefer a country covered with forests and ranged by a few thousand savages to our extensive republic studded with cities towns and prosperous farms embellished with all the improvements which art can devise or industry execute occupied by more than twelve million happy people and filled with all the blessings of liberty civilization and religion the present policy of the government is but a continuation of the same progressive change by a milder process the tribes which occupied the countries now constituting the eastern states were annihilated or have melted away to make room for the whites the waves of population and civilization are rolling to the westward and we now propose to acquire the countries occupied by the red men of the south and west by a fair exchange and at the expense of the united states to send them to a land where their existence may be prolonged and perhaps made perpetual doubtless it will be painful to leave the graves of their fathers but what do they more than our ancestors did or than our children are now doing 
to better their condition in an unknown land our forefathers left all that was dear in earthly objects our children by thousands yearly leave the land of their birth to seek new homes in distant regions does humanity weep at these painful separations from everything animate and inanimate with which the young heart has become entwined far from it it is rather a source of joy that our country affords scope where our young population may range unconstrained in body or in mind developing the power and faculties of man in their highest perfection these remove hundreds and almost thousands of miles at their own expense purchase the lands they occupy and support themselves at their new homes from the moment of their arrival can it be cruel in this government when by events which it cannot control the indian is made discontented in his ancient home to purchase his lands to give him a new and extensive territory to pay the expense of his removal and support him a year in his new abode how many thousands of our people would gladly embrace the opportunity of removing to the west on such conditions if the offers made to the indians were extended to them they would be hailed with gratitude and joy and is it supposed that the wandering savage has a stronger attachment to his home than the settled civilized christian is it more afflicting to him to leave the graves of his fathers than it is to our brothers and children rightly considered the policy of the general government toward the red men is not only liberal but generous he is unwilling to submit to the laws of the states and mingle with their population to save him from this alternative or perhaps utter annihilation the general government kindly offers him a new home and proposes to pay the whole expense of his removal and settlement in the consummation of a policy originating at an earlier period and steadily pursued by every administration within the present century so just to the states and so generous to the indians the executive feels it has a right to expect the cooperation of congress and of all good and disinterested men the states moreover have a right to demand it it was substantially a part of the compact which made the members of our confederacy with georgia there is an express contract with the new states an implied one of equal obligation why in authorizing ohio indiana illinois missouri mississippi and alabama to form constitutions and become separate states did congress include within their limits extensive tracts of indian lands and in some instances powerful indian tribes was it not understood by both parties that the power of the states was to be coextensive with their limits and that with all convenient dispatch the general government should extinguish the indian title and remove every obstruction to the complete jurisdiction of the state governments over the soil probably not one of those states would have accepted a separate existence certainly it would never have been granted by congress had it been understood that they were to be confined for ever to those small portions of their nominal territory the indian title to which had at the time been extinguished 
it is therefore a duty which this government owes to the new states to extinguish as soon as possible the indian title to all lands which congress themselves have included within their limits when this is done the duties of the general government in relation to the states and the indians within their limits are at an end the indians may leave the state or not as they choose the purchase of their lands does not alter in the least their personal relations with the state government no act of the general government has ever been deemed necessary to give the states jurisdiction over the persons of the indians that they possess by virtue of their sovereign power within their own limits in as full a manner before as after the purchase of the indian lands nor can this government add to or diminish it we may not hope therefore that all good citizens and none more zealously than those who think the indians oppressed by subjection to the laws of the states will unite in attempting to open the eyes of those children of the forest to their true condition and by a speedy removal to relieve them from all the evils real or imaginary present or prospective with which they may be supposed to be threatened among the numerous causes of congratulation the condition of our impost revenue deserves special mention inasmuch as it promises the means of extinguishing the public debt sooner than was anticipated and furnishes a strong illustration of the practical effects of the present tariff upon our commercial interests the object of the tariff is objected to by some as unconstitutional and it is considered by almost all as defective in many of its parts the power to impose duties on imports originally belonged to the several states the right to adjust those duties with a view to the encouragement of domestic branches of industry is so completely incidental to that power that it is difficult to suppose the existence of the one without the other the states have delegated their whole authority over imports to the general government without limitation or restriction saving the very inconsiderable reservation relating to their inspection laws this authority having thus entirely passed from the states the right to exercise it for the purpose of protection does not exist in them and consequently if it be not possessed by the general government it must be extinct our political system would thus present the anomaly of a people stripped of the right to foster their own industry and to counteract the most selfish and destructive policy which might be adopted by foreign nations this sure cannot be the case this indispensable power thus surrendered by the states must be within the scope of the authority on the subject expressly delegated to congress in this conclusion i am confirmed as well by the opinions of presidents washington jefferson madison and monroe who have each repeatedly recommended the exercise of this right under the constitution as by the uniform practice of congress the continued acquiescence of the states and the general understanding of the people the difficulties of a more expedient adjustment of the present tariff although great 
are far from being insurmountable. Some are unwilling to improve any of its parts because they would destroy the whole. Others fear to touch the objectionable parts, lest those they approve should be jeoparded. I am persuaded that the advocates of these conflicting views do injustice to the American people and to their representatives. The general interest is the interest of each, and my confidence is entire that to ensure the adoption of such modifications of the tariff as the general interest requires it is only necessary that the interest should be understood it is an infirmity of our nature to mingle our interests and prejudices with the operation of our reasoning powers and attribute to the objects of our likes and dislikes qualities they do not possess and effects they cannot produce. The effects of the present tariff are doubtless overrated, both in its evils and in its advantages. By one class of reasoners, the reduced price of cotton and other agricultural products is ascribed wholly to its influence, and by another, the reduced price of manufactured articles. The probability is that neither opinion approaches the truth, and that both are induced by that influence of interests and prejudices to which I have referred. The decrease of prices extends throughout the commercial world, embracing not only the raw material and the manufactured article, but provisions and lands. The cause must, therefore, be deeper and more pervading than the tariff of the United States. It may, in a measure, be attributable to the increased value of the precious metals, produced by a diminution of the supply and an increase in the demand, while commerce has rapidly extended itself and population has augmented. The supply of gold and silver, the general medium of exchange, has been greatly interrupted by civil convulsions in the countries from which they are principally drawn. A part of the effect, too, is doubtless owing to an increase of operatives and improvements in machinery. But on the whole, it is questionable whether the reduction in the price of lands, produce, and manufactures has been greater than the appreciation of the standard of value. While the chief object of duties should be revenue, they may be so adjusted as to encourage manufacturers. In this adjustment, however, it is the duty of the government to be guided by the general good. Objects of national importance alone ought to be protected. Of these, the productions of our soil, our mines, and our workshops essential to national defense occupy the first rank. Whatever other species of domestic industry having the importance to which I have referred may be expected, after temporary protection, to compete with foreign labor on equal terms, merit the same attention in a subordinate degree. The present tariff taxes some of the comforts of life unnecessarily high. It undertakes to protect interests too local and minute to justify a general exaction and it also attempts to force some kinds of manufactures for which the country is not ripe. Much relief will be derived in some of these respects from the measures of your last session. 
the best as well as fairest mode of determining whether from any just considerations a particular interest ought to receive protection would be to submit the question singly for deliberation if after due examination of its merits unconnected with extraneous considerations such as a desire to sustain a general system or to purchase support for a different interest it should enlist in its favor a majority of the representatives of the people there can be little danger of wrong or injury in adjusting the tariff with reference to its protective effect if this obviously just principle were honestly adhered to the branches of industry which deserve protection would be saved from the prejudice excited against them when that protection forms part of a system by which portions of the country feel or conceive themselves to be oppressed what is incalculably more important the vital principle of our system that principle which requires acquiescence in the will of the majority would be secure from the discredit and danger to which it is exposed by the acts of majorities founded not on identity of conviction but on combinations of small minorities entered into for the purpose of mutual assistance in measures which resting solely on their merits could never be carried i am well aware that this is a subject of so much delicacy on account of the extended interests it involves as to require that it should be touched with the utmost caution and that while an abandonment of the policy in which it originated a policy coeval with our government and pursued through successive administrations is neither to be expected or desired the people have a right to demand and have demanded that it be so modified as to correct abuses and obviate injustice that our deliberations on this interesting subject should be uninfluenced by those partisan conflicts that are incident to free institutions is the fervent wish of my heart to make this great question which unhappily so much divides and excites the public mind subservient to the short-sighted views of faction must destroy all hope of settling it satisfactorily to the great body of the people and for the general interest i cannot therefore in taking leave of the subject too earnestly for my own feelings or the common good warn you against the blighting consequences of such a course according to the estimates at the treasury department the receipts in the treasury during the present year will amount twenty four million one hundred and sixty one thousand eighteen dollars which will exceed by about three hundred thousand dollars the estimate presented in the last annual report of the secretary of the treasury the total expenditure during the year exclusive of public debt is estimated at thirteen million seven hundred and forty two thousand three hundred and eleven dollars and the payment on account of public debt in the same period will have been eleven million three hundred and fifty four thousand six hundred and thirty dollars leaving a balance in the treasury on january first eighteen thirty one of four million eight hundred and nineteen thousand seven hundred and eighty one dollars in connection with the condition of our finances it affords me pleasure to remark that judicious and efficient arrangements have been made by the treasury department 
for securing the pecuniary responsibility of the public officers and the more punctual payment of the public dues. The Revenue Cutter Service has been organized and placed on a good footing, and aided by an increase of inspectors at exposed points and regulations adopted under the Act of May 1830 for the inspection and appraisement of merchandise, has produced much improvement in the execution of the laws and more security against the commission of frauds upon the revenue. Abuses in the allowances for fishing bounties have also been corrected, and a material saving in that branch of the service thereby effected. In addition to these improvements, the system of expenditure for sick seamen belonging to the merchant service has been revised, and being rendered uniform and economical. The benefits of the fund applicable to this object have been usefully extended. The prosperity of our country is also further evinced by the increased revenue arising from the sale of public lands. As will appear from the report of the Commissioner of the General Land Office and the documents accompanying it, which are herewith transmitted. I beg leave to draw your attention to this report and to the propriety of making early appropriations for the objects which it specifies. Your attention is again invited to the subjects connected with the portion of the public interests entrusted to the War Department. Some of them were referred to in my former message, and they are presented in detail in the report of the Secretary of War herewith submitted. I refer you also to the report of the officer for a knowledge of the state of the Army fortifications, arsenals, and Indian affairs, all of which it will be perceived have been guarded with zealous attention and care. It is worthy of your consideration whether the armaments necessary for the fortifications of our maritime frontier, which are now or shortly will be completed, should not be in readiness sooner than the customary appropriations will enable the Department to provide them. This precaution seems to be due to the general system of fortification, which has been sanctioned by Congress and is recommended by that maxim of wisdom, which tells us in peace to prepare for war. I refer you to the report of the Secretary of the Navy for a highly satisfactory account of the manner in which the concerns of that department have been conducted during the present year, our position in relation to the most powerful nations of earth, and the present condition of Europe, admonish us to cherish this arm of our national defense with peculiar care separated by wide seas from all those governments whose power we might have reason to dread, we have nothing to apprehend from attempts at conquest. It is chiefly attacks upon our commerce and harassing inroads upon our coast against which we have to guard. A naval force adequate to the protection of our commerce, always afloat, with an accumulation of the means to give it a rapid extension in case of need, furnishes the power by which all such aggressions may be prevented or repelled. The attention of the government has therefore been recently directed more to preserving the public vessels already built and providing materials to be placed in depot for future use than to increasing their number. With the aid of Congress, in a few years, the government will be prepared in case of emergency to put afloat a powerful navy of new ships, 
almost as soon as old ones could be repaired. The modifications in this part of the service suggested in my last annual message, which are noticed more in detail in the report of the Secretary of the Navy, are again recommended to your serious attention. The report of the Postmaster General, in like manner, exhibits a satisfactory view of the important branch of the government under his charge. In addition to the benefits already secured by the operations of the Post Office Department, considerable improvements within the present year have been made by an increase in the accommodation afforded by stage coaches and in the frequency and celerity of the mail between some of the most important points of the Union. Under the late contracts, improvements have been provided for the southern sections of the country, and at the same time an annual saving made of upward of $72,000. Notwithstanding the excess of expenditure beyond the current receipts for a few years past, necessarily incurred in the fulfillment of existing contracts, and in the additional expenses between the periods of contracting to meet the demands created by the rapid growth and extension of our flourishing country, yet the satisfactory assurance is given that the future revenue of the Department will be sufficient to meet its extensive engagements. The system recently introduced that subjects its receipts and disbursements to strict regulation has entirely fulfilled its designs. It gives full assurance of the punctual transmission as well as the security of the funds of the department. The efficiency and industry of its officers and the ability and energy of contractors justify an increased confidence in its continued prosperity. The attention of Congress was called on a former occasion to the necessity of such a modification in the office of Attorney General of the United States, as would render it more adequate to the wants of the public service. This resulted in the establishment of the Office of Solicitor of the Treasury, and the earliest measures were taken to give effect to the provisions of the law which authorized the appointment of that officer and defined his duties. But it is not believed that this provision, however useful in itself, is calculated to supersede the necessity of extending the duties and powers of the Attorney General's office. On the contrary, I am convinced that the public interest would be greatly promoted by giving to that officer the general superintendence of the various law agents of the government and of all law proceedings, whether civil or criminal, in which the United States may be interested, allowing him at the same time such compensation as would enable him to devote his undivided attention to the public business. I think such provision is alike due to the public and to the officer. Occasions of reference from the different executive departments to the Attorney General are of frequent occurrence, and the prompt decision of the questions so referred tends much to facilitate the dispatch of business in those departments. The report of the Secretary of the Treasury, hereto appended, shows also a branch of the public service not specifically entrusted to any officer which might be advantageously committed to the Attorney General. But independently of those considerations, this office is now one of daily duty. 
It was originally organized and its compensation fixed with a view to occasional service, leaving to the incumbent time for the exercise of his profession in private practice. The state of things which warranted such an organization no longer exists. The frequent claims upon the services of this officer would render his absence from the seat of government and professional attendance upon the courts injurious to the public service, and the interests of the government could not fail to be promoted by charging him with the general superintendence of all its legal concerns. Under a strong conviction of the justness of these suggestions, I recommended to Congress to make the necessary provisions for giving effect to them, and to place the Attorney General in regard to compensation on the same footing with the heads of the several executive departments. To this officer might also be entrusted a cognizance of the cases of insolvency in public debtors, especially if the views which I submitted on this subject last year should meet the approbation of Congress, to which I again solicit your attention. Your attention is respectfully invited to the situation of the District of Columbia, placed by the Constitution under the exclusive jurisdiction and control of Congress, this district is certainly entitled to a much greater share of its consideration than it has yet received. There is a want of uniformity in its laws, particularly in those of a penal character which increases the expense of their administration and subjects the people to all the inconveniences which result from the operation of different codes in so small a territory. On different sides of the Potomac, the same offense is punishable in unequal degrees, and the peculiarities of many of the early laws of Maryland and Virginia remain in force, notwithstanding their repugnance in some cases to the improvements which have superseded them in those states. Besides a remedy for these evils, which is loudly called for, it is respectfully submitted whether a provision authorizing the election of a delegate to represent the wants of the citizens of this district on the floor of Congress is not due to them and to the character of our government. No principles of freedom, and there is none more important than that which cultivates a proper relation between the governors and the governed, imperfect as this must be in this case, yet it is believed that it would be greatly improved by a representation in Congress with the same privileges that are allowed to other territories of the United States. The penitentiary is ready for the reception of convicts, and only awaits the necessary legislation to put it into operation, as one object of which I beg leave to recall your attention to the propriety of providing suitable compensation for the officers charged with its inspection. The importance of the principles involved in the inquiry, whether it will be proper to recharter the Bank of the United States, requires that I should again call the attention of Congress to the subject. Nothing has occurred to lessen in any degree the dangers which many of our citizens apprehend from that institution as at present organized. In the spirit of improvement, and compromise, which distinguishes our country and its institutions, it becomes us to inquire 
whether it not be possible to secure the advantages afforded by the present bank through the agency of a bank of the united states so modified in its principles and structures as to obviate constitutional and other objections it is thought practicable to organize such a bank with the necessary officers as a branch of the treasury department based on the public and individual deposits without power to make loans or purchase property which shall remit the funds of the government and the expense of which may be paid if thought advisable by allowing its officers to sell bills of exchange to private individuals at a moderate premium not being a corporate body having no stockholders debtors or property and but few officers it would not be obnoxious to the constitutional objections which are urged against the present bank and having no means to operate on the hopes fears or interests of large masses of the community it would be shorn of the influence which makes that bank formidable the states would be strengthened by having in their hands the means of furnishing the local paper currency through their own banks while the Bank of the United States, though issuing no paper, would check the issues of the state banks by taking their notes in deposit and for exchange only so long as they continue to be redeemed with specie. In times of public emergency, the capacities of such an institution might be enlarged by legislative provisions. These suggestions are made not so much as a recommendation as with a view of calling the attention of congress to the possible modifications of a system which cannot continue to exist in its present form without occasional collisions with the local authorities and perpetual apprehensions and discontent on the part of the states and the people in conclusion fellow citizens allow me to invoke in behalf of your deliberations that spirit of conciliation and disinterestedness which is the gift of patriotism under an overruling and merciful providence the agency of this spirit has thus far been signalized in the prosperity and glory of our beloved country may its influence be eternal end of section five